Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Kathy Kay, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2017, and we are reading from the big book. We are on page 40, the third paragraph, which begins in this frame of mind. Today's readers are Marietta P. on the 12 Steps, Esther F. on the 12 Traditions, and reading the text are Allison L., Martha Z., and Du L. Our newcomer greeter today is Mary Ann D. Um, The reference numbers for yesterday, uh, May 15th, 2017, the 7 a.m. is 9941, and the 10 a.m. is 9942. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Marietta P. to read the 12 steps of OA. Good morning, Marietta P. from... Uh, Virginia recovered. One, we admitted we were powerless over food and that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching, fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. 
Thank you, Marietta P. And Esther F., would you read the 12 traditions of OA? Good morning. This is Esther F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Cleveland, Ohio. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. And 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do service. I pass. Thank you, Esther F. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinent requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page 40, the third paragraph down. I will ask Allison L. to read three paragraphs that end on page 42. Um, It was a crushing blow. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. This is Allison L. Good morning. Um, recovered compulsive overeater in Ohio. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine, 
Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had thought nothing of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that I had, that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow starting my timer oh, so much in these paragraphs um, so mr. Fred here um, I relate to him so much he had a good life um, he wasn't drinking to escape a terrible life and he came and he learned a little bit about alcoholism and saw that he needed to stop drinking and I relate to that I had a pretty good life when I came into OA I actually was at a decent weight. Um, I had reached some goals. I had a family life that I was happy with. Um, yet I needed to learn more because I, I knew that um, I would gain weight back eventually because I couldn't stop eating. So I came in, I got some information. Um, I had the self-knowledge. Oh, I needed to stop eating sugar. That's what I heard. That was my takeaway. Okay, I can do that. I will stop eating sugar. That that's that's what's the problem and then you know I kept coming back I heard some about the steps I did a little bit of that you know dabbled in that did what I thought would help me um, stay thin and a little bit sane and felt better and then um, you know went on vacation and surely I didn't have to you know be on guard so much on vacation and so I, I got some sugar in my system and then um, I remember it was a crushing blow because I was I, I was at an all-time low. I got home from vacation. I went to the grocery store, and um, I couldn't get through my grocery shopping trip without opening food to eat. Um, it, was, it was insane. It was um, – I could feel the, the allergy of my body um, had been triggered, and I was, I was called to the food so much that I – was eating in the store. I got to the car. I was eating in the car. Um, and still, um, it was, it was a crushing blow because I realized I was going to have to do the work, um, 
and that this 12-step program, um, I was going to have to work all 12 steps in order and that I was going to have to be entirely abstinent. That meant no eating recreationally. Um, that meant, um, you know, I, I had to abstain on vacation and then I had to abstain at parties. Um, it meant that I had to work the 12 steps and live in this new way of life that was unfamiliar to me and not entirely comfortable, but I could no longer um, live with the food and I could no longer live without the food and my only option was to do the work and that was a crushing blow and I cried over it um, and then I um, decided I only had two options continue being miserable in the food or do the work put the food down and do the 12 steps and listen to somebody who um, whom in the problem in whom the problem had been solved I did what she told me to do and um, I now live in a recovered state and I'm able to help others get out of that hole that I was once in. So with that, I will pass. Thank you, Allison L. Who would like to share on these paragraphs? Madam. Madam. Kim Kim G. Okay, one second. Um, Larry. Okay, I have Nancy R, Matt M, Kim G. Melissa C. and Larry K. Tina S. I'm sorry, who is that? Tina S. Stop there, Tina S. And uh, we'll get others the next round. So we have Nancy R., Matt M., Kim G., Melissa C., Larry K., and Tina S. Thank you. Please go ahead, Nancy R., Hi, hi. Um, I think that was Nessa R. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Nessa. Th- th- that's all. That's all right. Um, um, uh, so this is Nessa R. And I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. And um, you know, all the self will and all the self knowledge in the world um, were not enough to protect me from that uh, mental blind blank spot. And, you know, I I just want to point out that uh, this story has more eyes per square inch than even Bill's story. Um, You know, it's much shorter, but if you look at proportionally, there's a lot more eyes. And that was definitely the case for me because I was trying for the longest time to fix myself to deal with my food problem, to deal with my, my weight problem, not knowing that, of course, I had misdiagnosed my problem and that my problem had absolutely nothing to do with, you know, with my, with my food or my weight. They were just manifestations of a deeper problem that I wasn't aware about. My, my problem is powerlessness and is that inability to use my self-will and my self-knowledge, which I successfully used in so many areas of my life in order to deal in order to deal with the food that's what makes me so powerless you know that i have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind and it's yet is that obsession that keeps pushing me time and time again no matter how many times i re- repeat the experiment and how many times i get the exact same results which 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 are you know, uh, an obese body, uh, miserable and insane life, um, unhappiness all around me, 
you know, every time I think this time is going to be different, this time is not going to be a problem, but guess what? That never actually happens. That never actually happens. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a a weight loss program for men here in Toronto. I don't know if it's all across Canada, but for sure in Toronto. And their motto, um, I love, and it says, if you could have done it alone, you would have done it already. And that is me. And that is Fred. And that is probably a lot of us. You know, we we keep thinking that we can do it ourselves, that we should be able to do it ourselves, but it didn't work for me. The only thing that has worked for me in terms of helping me with the mental blind spot is the steps. The steps worked in in absolute, complete, entire abstinence is the only thing that has um, removed my problem, has removed my food obsession, has placed me in a position of neutrality uh, towards the food and given me a wonderful, happy, contented life, despite the fact that my circumstances have changed by but little. And if it works for me, it can work for anybody. This this program can work for anybody. You know, like oftentimes I hear, well, you know, the 12 steps don't always work. And in my mind I say, well, if the steps don't always work, it's because we don't always work the steps. Because, you know, the program works if we work it, work it honestly, thoroughly, and properly the way it is outlined here in entire abstinence, in sequence, and to the best of our ability. That has been my experience, and that can be anybody's experience. And uh, with that, I pass. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. Okay, are you still there? Oh, there you are. Yeah. There I am. <laughs> sorry. Thank you, Nessa R. Matt M., please go ahead. Thank you, Kathy, for your service. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt M., compulsive lover eater from New Jersey. Uh, it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Things were going well for Fred. He had no problems. He had no physical reason to drink or mental reason to drink. And then all of a sudden, he found himself in the dining room drinking, and uh, that, that's like me. I find myself having a wonderful, perfect day, and then I find myself face down in a pizzeria with four slices. Like I was walking home today from the, yesterday from the library, and I, I passed my bank, and I passed right next to the bank is a pizzeria, and across the street from there is right as a quick mart, like a little convenience store. And I thought to myself, even good idea for me to go in the bank and take out my last $20 and go to the pizzeria and get about like four slices and a drink. And I thank God I made a phone call because I don't need to. Do, I didn't need to do it. So I got I got my butt home where it belonged. And I had my afternoon dinner and I finished my fourth step. And um, it's it's just amazing that to how how this disease is so insidious. It just pops in my head. Suddenly the thought occurred to me: It'd be okay to have a few slices. It'd be fine. I can handle it. it doesn't mean it doesn't matter if it's white flour or it doesn't matter if somebody buying a, a sugar drink, drink with sugar in it because I never buy water. What's water? I drink water at home when I'm in when I'm here when I'm at my home. But I don't drink anything other than that, you know. And then on towards the bottom, he's talking about when he gets back, he takes a plane, finds himself on a plane, he gets back to New York, and a cab driver um, takes him around, and he, he has a blackout. He doesn't remember um, where he where he go, where he went, or what he did. He had a total blackout. And then uh, towards the bottom of page 41, he made no fight whatsoever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. So mental, the, the, the curious mental blind spot that he had in his brain that um, prevented him from making the right right decision. 
And, it, and he did say that they said that Belway did raise the defense and then one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. That same thing happened to me. I, w- I, was, gonna, I was just going to give everything I had up and start from the beginning again because I, want, I, I just thought of you that I did have a couple slices of pizza. Does not make sense, you know? Self-knowledge would not help me at all. I had to make, I had to take the next right, do the next right thing and make phone calls to get myself home and then have my next bath, next right thing. It's after that is to have my absent dinner, which is what I did. So I'm just grateful that, you know, this is, this program does work when I work it. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, Kim G., please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. A perfect day. But the thought came, and it struck me. You know, I really thought for many years before OA, and unfortunately in OA, that I was an emotional eater. That's my problem. I'm an emotional eater, and if I can only arrange my life in such a way that I'm going to be happy, change the circumstances in my life, that I'm not going to want to eat. And here is, is, is Fred having the perfect day. And he, here we talk a lot about the promises in the book. Here's a promise. They had, these men had prophesied, had promised him that if he had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, he would drink again. And that's what step one is telling me. Step one is not telling me don't drink. Step one is telling me you're going to drink, you're going to drink, you're going to drink. You know, my brother is a, is a uh, diabetic, and he's, I don't know, I don't know if there's type 1, type 2, but he's the insulin-dependent diabetic. And if he goes to a diabetic support group, and some people who aren't insulin-dependent say, come on, Scott, I know that they tell you you have to take that insulin, but, you know, you're a diabetic, I'm a diabetic, I can just do my dieting thing, and I, and I don't need to take insulin, so I think you should be able to do that. That would kill my brother, because his pancreas is different. He does not produce insulin. He needs to have um, insulin shots. And that's what I have to understand. There's many people who maybe are emotional eaters. There's people in Overeaters Anonymous that can simply commit their food and talk about their feelings, and they won't want to eat. But I'm the alcoholic of the type that these gentlemen are warning him about. I'm the type that has a mental blank spot. That no matter what my um, best intentions are, no matter what the circumstances going on in my life, I am going to eat over and over and over. And this is just my experience. I think my experience, I came in LA in 94, we had eight tools, and one of the tools was abstinence. And from what I've heard, the concern with World Service was that we were too many people were using facts to remedy, and there wasn't enough emphasis on, on uh, having to be abstinent. So they changed the tool of abstinence to food plan, and they elevated abstinence as the, as the focus of what these tools will do for you. So abstinence now became the goal and not a means to get to work the steps. And my feeling is, if you, know, if you have a food problem, wonderful. Because once you put the food down, you will be okay, and working these steps, working these tools will be enough. But if you're an alcoholic of the type described in this book, which is what I am, those tools will not be sufficient. Being on guard will not be sufficient. Getting the, the husband to listen to you and the kids to behave is not going to be sufficient because I personally have this strange mental blind spot that Fred has. And regardless of the circumstances, if I do not treat my alcoholic mind with the steps, I will eat again. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim G. Melissa C., please go ahead. 
Hi, good morning, Kathy. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's Melissa C. Recovered, compulsive overeater in New York. And, um, yeah, you know, not a cloud on the horizon. That just really grabs me because, um, you know, that, that was my thinking. Like, if everything was perfect around me, um, then I'd have no reason to eat, except I'm the cloud on my horizon. I'm all, I, you know, the reason to eat exists inside of me. That's step one. I am powerless to food. My life is unmanageable. This is a real step one issue that um, this problem is huge. It's not, um, I can't make light of it. You know, even today being recovered, if I have for a moment the thought that, oh, this isn't such a big deal. Really? You got this. You look normal. Um, you really don't have to do, you know, your daily work, your daily stuff. You're making too much of this. Um, that is extremely dangerous for somebody like me. Um, and, uh, and I'm, you know, capable of falling in that hole today. Um, you know, it wasn't just in the beginning. I think in the beginning, um, you know, especially when I felt licked and, and down, it was easy to say, okay, I'll do anything. I, I want to get out of this pain. You know, help me. But um, Fred here was doing great at this point, you know. And and um, and so I'm at the greatest danger when I think I'm doing great, you know, that when there's not a cloud in the horizon, um, when everything is going well, I cannot let up on the seriousness, you know, of, of what this is I'm up against. And, um, you know, and so... Yeah, that means that I go on vacation and I do the same thing um, that I do when I'm home. Um, yes, the same thing in regards to food, but the same thing also in regards to my work. You know, I still have to get up in the morning. I still have to, you know, turn my will and my life over to the care of my higher power, no matter if I'm waking up at home or if I'm waking up, you know, on a tropical island. And, um, and any time that I've been away, and I thought, I'm making too much of this problem, you know, just um, be normal. <laughs> just can't you just be normal for a day? Um, I'm not normal, you know, and, and within a short amount of time, I'm, um, you know, like he is, blacking out, completely not even sure how it is that I fell so far. Um, you know, and so what I really hear here is that, he needed an experience of where there was not a cloud on the horizon, you know, to know that the cloud is me and, um, and that this problem is huge and it requires a transformation. Thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. Larry Kay, please go ahead. Hi, Kathy. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay. Thanks, Kathy. Larry Kay, Recovered Compulsive Reader from Chicago. So Fred says that, uh, that as soon as he, he regained his ability to think, he went carefully over that evening in Washington. Now, here's something critically important. He says, <clears throat> he says the following. He says, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatsoever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. So does that tell you that you... You, that you need to make a, learn from Fred. You fight this. No, that's not what this tells you at all. You know, let me state emphatically, as long as our spiritual malady remains untreated, 
that the spiritual malady remains supreme, no matter how long you've been dieting in this program, because I know I've done it, no matter how great your sponsor is, you may have a fabulous sponsor. No matter how many meetings you attend, no matter how disciplined you've been in program, no matter how bad you want to be thin, you want to stop vomiting, no matter how badly you need this deal, you come here every day, every day you hear you're filled up. See, here's the deal. You are biologically mandated to pick up again. You will pick up again. I know that from experience. Only a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps taken one through 12, one after another, precisely, not perfectly, but in sequence. Only a spiritual awakening, only a spiritual awakening is sufficient to give you access to this power. If you want to test it, go ahead. Keep coming back. Keep testing it. I did. It won't work. There will come a day, just like Fred, that you will have no mental defense. And until you have a spiritual awakening sufficient to drive out the obsession, to, to take it from you, to set you on the course of, um, of, of, of a, moving from a, a self-centered existence to a God-centered existence, you will have no power. Once that does happen, though, I can tell you, you will have a defense. The defense will not come from you. It will come from the higher power of your own understanding, and you will have that defense, and it'll feel different. It'll feel different than the dieting and group support you've done before. And until you experience that, you won't know the difference. You don't have to take my word for it. This program is experiential. It's not conceptual. It means you do it, and you get the result. You don't conceptualize it. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks, Larry K. Tina S. Please go ahead. Thanks, Kathy. Tina S. Recovered compulsive eater anorexic in Florida. Wow, some great stuff. Um, you know, I, I certainly relate to Fred. You know, I can remember back in the 80s, I left treatment and um, I was feeling better. I was acting better and, and all went well for a time, you know. And, and then I was like, well, you know, I was really making too hard work of a simple matter, you know. And, uh, and then th the thought came to mind, you know, and I love it. I listened to this um, big book CD, and, and the guy says, my sponsor tells me every time I have a thought, I better give him a call, because that's the truth. You know, on my own, in my mind, I'm screwed. And so the thought came to mind for me, I, you know, I've done so well with this food thing, you know, surely I could eat like a normal person. My God, you know, and, uh, and I loved, you know, it's, it's Fred says that he care carelessly picked up alcohol. You know, I carelessly picked up my alcoholic food. You know, thinking that this time it would be different. You know, I, I was so good for so long. You know, and, and you know, and I had an alcoholic mind. You know, uh, and a sick mind cannot fix a sick mind. You know, I had to have God's help. And I love that it talks about it in chapter six into action. You know, this is the how and why of it. I had to quit playing God. You know, and I never thought I ever did. You know, um, certainly I wasn't playing God. You know, but that's all I was playing. You know, as I was in my disease, you know, I had to try, you know, this time I'll do this thing. Next time I'll do that thing. And, and certainly it'll be different. Well, that was not the case for me. And I love that it was just said, you know, it comes a time when I won't have a mental defense. And that defense must come from a power greater than myself. And unless I'm doing the deal, I'm not getting it. 
you know, and I've had that experience, unless I'm actually actively working it, I'm not going to get the benefits. And I'm grateful today that I want to keep getting what I'm getting, and I want more. I always wanted more, and I want more of this. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Tina S. Okay, let's take some more names. How about Barbara L? E? Okay, Monica. Barbara E. Leia D. Stop for a minute because I'm with you. I have two L Harlan G. Who else? Barbara D. Amy M C. Okay, Barbara Cynthia C. Amy C. Leia. Leia. Is that Leia S? D. A or D. Okay. Monica. Okay. Okay, Monica. If we have time, which I think we will, let's stop there. So I have Barbara E. Do L. Harlan G. Barbara D. Amy S. D. Leah D. And Monica T. That's Barbara B. B is in boy. Okay. Sorry, Barbara. Okay. okay. Um, please go ahead, Barbara E. Uh, good morning, everyone. Can I be heard? Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, this really speaks to me, that mental blank spot, amnesia about the consequences of my compulsive overeating, the shame. It didn't matter. And there was not a cloud in the sky, not a cloud that I could see, but there was. I didn't know that my my resentments were that cloud. I was thin again, but not happy. I had lost the weight. My goodness, as a teenager with shots, with pills, fat camp, as an adult with all kinds of programs, gotten thin, thought I was normal. I wasn't happy. I expected to be happy. I expected that thin and happiness went together. I had no spiritual program. I hadn't even, even heard of OA. I just didn't recognize that my eating would return again and again. I've heard the phrase, do the program like your hair was on fire. Well, with me, it was eat like my hair was on fire. I wanted to be normal, but I couldn't be. I was stopped by the police, speeding to a fast food restaurant. I was stopped by the police for driving erratically when I bent down to pick a french fry up off the floor of my car. I cruised around looking for food in my car. I ate out of my car. I hid food. I was a terrible role model for my children. I gave them poor body images because I had such a poor body image. I went from a size 24 to a 4 to immediately back to a 24. I tried all those devices, zipping my zipper halfway up and securing it with a safety pin so it wouldn't unzip. I tried everything in the world. I wore only clothes from Lane Bryant's. Omar the tent maker outfits. I was a little bubble head with curly hair in a huge body. I hated my life. I hated everything. 
And then I found OA and I did the tools. And for some reason, I was able to stay abstinent for all these years. But I was not happy abstinent. I wasn't joyous and free abstinent. I carried my resentments, my harms, my fears around me with like rocks in a backpack on my shoulder. Slowly, and I do say slowly, those rocks are being pulled out of my backpack and cast aside. I want to keep working the program. I want to work the program like my hair is on fire, not my eating like my hair is on fire, because I know that devil is out there behind me and come back out of its cage any moment if I allow it. I won't allow it. I won't white-knuckle it anymore. I will work the program, take every step in order, follow my step sponsor as the teacher she is and be so grateful for her. No more mental blank spots, only the program. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Barbara E. Do L, please go ahead. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, everyone. Do L, Recover Compulsible Reader from New York. Um, I love this because it's given me two types of definition here uh, for a defense. The first definition that it gives me um, is found here on page 40 where he says that Um, I had every right to be self-confident, and that would be a matter of exercising my own self-willpower and keeping on guard. So that's that's the defense, right? Like, I'm going to do it myself. I got self-knowledge. I'm going to will my way through this. And then the second defense is a defense that comes from a power greater than ourselves. And that one we need because we don't have the sufficient force to bring into our consciousness you know, uh, the, 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 the ability to think through, right? Because it says, you know, when self-knowledge occurs, um, that would not help me in the strange mental blank spots. What are the strange mental blank spots? Um, a lot of people think this is a mystery, what the mental uh, strange blank spots are. This mental strange blank spots are the suds, are the seemingly unimportant decisions, are the habits that are buried in our unconscious because we've been practicing that year after year after year after year, binging our brains off. That becomes automatic. Any habit is is a practice that we've developed over time that becomes automatic. It's just like driving. When I first started driving initially, I had to be conscious of what I was doing. But eventually, as I practice it more, it became automatic where I don't even think about it anymore, you know? So when these mental strange blank spots come in, you know, I'm not going to address it with self-knowledge because I'm not even thinking about it, you know? And then I have a faulty mind. It says, if I have an alcoholic mind, a mind that keeps me in the lies, keeps me in the justifications, keeps me in the excuses, I'm not going to be able to do that on my own. You know, Um, I need something greater than myself to be able to pull me out of those lies, to keep me honest, to keep me rigorously honest, 
to practice this program a different way, to develop new habits, to develop a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things, right? And we do that through the steps. Um, and that's what, what um, but I'm not going to do that until I learn the most important lesson is that I can't control. I can't do this on my own. I have to be at that defeated place to be able to move to a higher power. And that's what this paragraph or these paragraphs are telling me. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Duel. Harlan G., please go ahead. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for your service, and thank you to Team Tuesday for making this magnificent meeting so possible for all of us. I'm Harlan G., and I'm a a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. And for many, many decades of my life, this disease ransacked me and ripped me to shreds and tore me asunder and ripped and destroyed everything about my life. It emasculated me. It deformed me. It pulled me through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And yet, because of the mental blank spot, which is the built-in forgetter, the mental blank spot prevents me from remembering, from bringing into consciousness what the food does to me, and I can only remember what the food does for me. Dr. Silkworth tells me that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a drink. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Impunity just means that they don't get punished for it. What is this chapter about? Is it about people who are drunk and can't get sober? Quite the contrary. This is a chapter about people who are sober, who make a decision to pick up alcohol again after having severe consequences from it. Now, here's the kicker, and this is the lesson for me. No matter what this disease did to me, I will embrace it, chase it, and run after it with everything I have yet again if I stop working the steps. Without the presence of a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps on a minute-to-minute basis of my life, my brain will be unable to unleash, unlatch itself from that effect, that memory of what the Oreo cookie will do for me. And I will convince myself that this time will be different. I will convince myself that this time I can have one Oreo cookie and I will eat one trigger the allergy, and eat a thousand of them. That is this illness. That is what I have. This chapter is about step one. It's about the thinking that precedes the first drink because that is the crux of the problem. The thinking that precedes the first drink says, I can get away with this. I'm on vacation. This is different. This will somehow be different, and I will eat an Oreo or a Kit Kat bar, and I'll be off to the races again. Only this time, it'll be worse because of the progressive nature of this illness. I must work the steps and work them like my hair's on fire. Otherwise, I will eat again. 
It is as certain as gravity. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks, Harlan G. Barbara D., please go ahead. Okay, this is Barbara B. Oh, I'm sorry. Barbara B., go ahead. Thank you. Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Massachusetts. I never get tired of reading Fred's story because I see so much of myself, and as I go through each of his movements, I relive a situation I've described before, but I still learn from it, and it keeps me committed uh, today. First of all, when he said, well, he didn't see what harm it would do, you know, he'd just have a cocktail, and it was not a cloud in the sky that day. It takes me back many years ago, after my first year in OA, having come thinking I could be no more miserable, over 200 pounds, first year, Uh, The Great Awakening, lost 100 pounds, that was the body, Uh, worked on resentments. I had a wonderful sponsor guide. She gave me Came to Believe, the book, Came to Believe, working on developing relationship with a, a new God, a new higher power. But then after that year, just like Fred, I remember very well, I was on vacation with my family on Martha's Vineyard, Four children, part of my new behavior and recovery is to do something for myself. I got a babysitter. My husband had been called back on business. I took myself out. Now, this business of being restored to sanity, I feel like Fred. I didn't take myself out to a museum or to the ocean or to a bookstore or whatever. I took myself out to lunch, and there I was. And I had an abstinent lunch. But then I glanced over at a table and I saw a very slim woman having a piece of something for dessert. And I said, you know, I can probably do that now after this year. I can probably do that. And she left part of it on the plate and she left the restaurant. And I said, yeah, that can be me. And so I ordered the very same thing And that was what unleashed it, the phenomenon of craving. I finished that. I left. I went across the street. I got in the car. I drove up island from place to place. And and I was totally, totally gripped by the allergy having been triggered, that phenomenon of craving, which was beyond all reason. So where was the sanity? As he says, where was the remembrance of everything that had been said? Did I think of anything? Did I remember the consequences? No. And I thought I couldn't get any more miserable than when I came. Well, I was carted off the island that night in an ambulance to a center, uh, you know, to recover from this breakdown. And um, even while I was in there, I kept going to the refrigerator in the evening when people were sleeping. I mean, I was madness. So it took all that it took to be very clear that I'm powerless over food, my life is unmanageable, and begin to really do the steps at a deeper level. And um, so I'm very glad to to look at it, to look at Fred, to look at myself, because I don't want to forget to remember. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara B. Amy S.D., please go ahead. Hi, this is Amy M.C. from Massachusetts. May I be heard? Yes, sorry, Amy. MC, go ahead, please. 
No problem, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Um, gosh, uh, so I'm Amy MC, um, compulsive overeater from Massachusetts, and uh, I'm so grateful for Fred and this story because, um, you know, this, this is a part of my life. This is what I've done with the food. I did it a million times over thinking I was fine. You know, it says here, for a time, all was well. No trouble refusing, uh, you know. I, I too experienced that. I, I went through a period where it's okay. No, I don't need the dessert. No, I don't need to have that. And it felt great, you know, right? It feels wonderful to be able to say no. But all of a sudden, you know, um, the thought comes to mind and that was all. And that leads to one and that leads to another and another and another. Um, and then the whole point here and not knowing where he was and that Fred had a driver um, driving him around for days, you know, his wife not picking him up at the airport, not remembering um, a thing that happened for these days and then landing himself back in a hospital for the mental and physical suffering. I mean, you know, this is my story. This is my story with food. I've been through it. I've been through it a million and one times. I've been through the diet. I've been through the, oh, yes, I've done it for a while. Now I can try this. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of the things other people are talking about today, too, while being in program. You know, it's recently been pointed out to me, if you're committing your food only and you're not working the steps, you know, it really is just a diet. And what's different from that diet versus every other diet I've been on? Nothing. You know, I need to have God-centered awareness. I need to, you know, be working my steps, working with others, coming on to meetings, sharing, saying what's going on with myself because this is a progressive disease, you know. With Fred's story here, that's what I see. I see his disease progressing because he didn't even question it. He didn't talk himself out of it. It was gone. You know, that, that reasoning that we have in the beginning, as it was said, it was easy in the beginning. I was licked by this disease. I would do whatever you people told me. The food was down. I was committing my food. I was working the steps. I was on my knees, you know. But my disease is just waiting for me. The second, the second, the millisecond, as people have been sharing, if I'm on vacation or, you know, a weekend away, and that thought comes to mind, oh, well, maybe I don't need to commit my food today. Oh, maybe I don't need to be prepared and go away for a week with my food, my food all weighed and measured and ready to go. If those thoughts are coming through my mind, I sure better get on the phone and be calling my sponsor, talking to others, journaling, and praying about it because there's something else going on there, and I don't want to go back to where I came from. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Amy MC. Leah D., please go ahead. Hi, good morning. My name is Leah D. Recovered from Brooklyn. Not only have I been off guard, I had no fight whatever against that first drink. This time I had thought of not thought of the consequences. Reading this, all I could think about is every time I went on an airplane or went on a trip, and because of these rooms, I had become a kosher observant girl. And of course, one of the only things you can find in an airport is fruit and nut mix. 
And that's what I did every time. As casually as I would go and say, well, I don't have a choice. I mean, I'm hungry. What am I going to do? And I can see myself now sitting in this airplane, eating these things and saying to myself, how did I do that again? But yet my hand was like a crane. You know that crane that goes down and finds the little animals and lifts it up again? The food would go into my mouth and I couldn't stop. It was like an electromagnet shoveling it in. And my head felt like it was going to explode because I couldn't stop. The squiggly lines here is important. Joe and Charlie tell me so. I would go to the airport and say, nah, I don't have to prepare food. Nah, it's okay. It's a short flight. Nah, I don't need to do this. My disease is critical. And I am learning today to forgive the OA of 40 years ago for not telling me about the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. I was told I had this threefold illness, physical, emotional, and spiritual, all this other stuff. I am turning to be grateful today that I am here because of that. I'm even more grateful that in 18 months, I'm living 12 steps, 12 traditions, and have a personal God in my soul that's personal to me because I've learned how to live the steps. So I know that when this mental twist is going to pop in again, because I'm, I'm only human, I need to know what to do about it. I still get nervous going on an airplane. I call my sponsor and have to repair because the airplane was always the time when I picked up. But by the grace of God, the last couple of trips, I haven't needed a seatbelt extender. I took it anyway because you can't always tell what the seats are. But it's very dangerous for me to fly because that was always a time to eat, binge, and decide that I'm normal. What's the big deal? It is really a big deal. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah D. Monica T., it's your turn. Thank you. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica T., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Florida. My alcoholic friends had told me how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. So what is this alcoholic mind? This alcoholic mind of mine here dooms me to pick the food back up again when I am abstinent. And what is it? My mind tells me a lie that I believe every single time. I have an inability to think straight with this alcoholic mind. It tells me a lie. I believe it every single time. And the other part of this is that I have no memory of the resolutions or of the consequences of this disease. I am a pickle, and I will never be a cucumber again. This is the type of mind I've got. I have an alcoholic mind. I'm 100% powerless over this. You know, when, you, when I look back over my shoulder, I did the same things over and over again, thought the same stupid things over and over again, got back in the food over and over again because I'm powerless over this alcoholic mind. I can't think my way out of it. And, you know, I had to really realize this. Okay, now, it's not my fault I have this alcoholic mind. I'm not a loser 
because I have this alcoholic mind. I'm not weak will because I have this alcoholic mind. It's something I think I was born with. It's a fact. It's what I've got. And I have absolutely no defense against it. And that's why I needed to work through the steps because I needed a power that was greater than my alcoholic mind that could remove this obsession, this inability to think straight about food from my mind. And that's a power greater than me. And how did that happen? It happened for me by working the steps. Did I really believe? Did I understand? No, but, you know, I wanted what you had. So I was willing to do the work. And as a result of doing the work, I got a relationship here with a power that's greater than me. And this power removes this crazy thinking from my head on a daily basis. I'm powerless. Step one here. And it's not my fault. It's the way I am. But there is a solution. Thank you, God. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Monica T. Thank you to everyone who shared. It's now time for us to close the first hour of our meeting. Please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. The share ID for today, Tuesday, May 16th, 2017, is 9944. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Martha Z., would you please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Good morning, my friends in recovery. This is Martha Z. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater by the grace of God from near Philadelphia. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.